You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. You know, we are sitting here subject to this incredibly powerful illusion that everything we perceive is everything there is to perceive. Our conscious experience of the world feels complete. It doesn't feel like it's full of holes or missing information, but it is. For Spring Fling, Guardian Australia nature columnist Helen Sullivan talks to acclaimed science journalist Ed Yong, who takes us beyond the limits of human perception to uncover the world through the eyes of animals. Before we begin today, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting this afternoon on the lands of the Wandri Wai Warang people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which this event is taking place, and acknowledge any First Nations people who are with us here today. We pay our respects to your elders, past, present, and emerging. On this referendum day, I particularly acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people, and thank you for your care for country and the natural world over many, many generations. It may seem strange to be sitting here where we are about to discuss animal senses on a day that is so important to Australia and at the end of a week of immense, immense sadness um, for Israelis and Palestinians and people around the world. Um, But as we face the future, uncertain as it is, um, I've found Ed's book to be wonderful company. It is a book about empathy, And in some ways, the perfect place to sit right now is with this book. A quick thanks to the sponsors of this event. The Wheeler Centre is proud to be working with RMIT Culture to present this event at the Capitol as part of Spring Fling, supported by the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. Special thanks to Spring Fling book selling partner Readings and accommodation partner Sofitel. Ed Yong is an award-winning science journalist who writes for The Atlantic. His reporting on the COVID pandemic won multiple awards, including a Pulitzer. He writes about anything that is or was once alive. (laughs) I think you may have written those words. I wrote that because when I used to say I write about everything that was alive, like the paleontologist got really mad. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And today we are here to discuss your wonderful, wonderful book about how animals sense the world around us. Let's begin. Now, Ed, I would like to start with the most important question, mm-hmm. which is, of course, if you could have one animal sense, oh my God. <laughs> what would it be? Um, so, oh, so, there are so, right, there are so many, and I think actually the one I would choose Um, might sound a little mundane. Like, I would love to be able to smell the world in the way a dog does. Um, Not because it's especially cool, right? So it's not not one of the superpower senses. It's not things like sensing the Earth's magnetic field or electric fields given off by living things. Um, It is a sense that we kind of have, but it's used in a very different way by dogs. it's, I think having it might be actually a terrible idea, uh, <laughs> but I think that doing so would bring me closer to my dog. Um, I think I would have just a clearer sense of what he experiences when we go about our daily walks. You know, what, what um, every dog owner knows that feeling when you're uh, trotting along really happily with your dog and then they grind to a halt 
and furiously investigate a bit of uh, pavement that just looks completely nondescript, but is clearly bursting with interest and scent. And I think having access to that would show me what our world is like to him. And, you know, like you said at the, in that very kind intro, at, at the core of this book is, is empathy and trying to understand perspectives that are very different from your own. So I, I choose that because I think it would help me empathize with the animal that I'm closest to. So Ed's dog is called Typo, which is a very clever name for a writer's dog. Um, tell He's me also about- on the cover of the book. He is also on this, he, this is Typo here. Um, tell me a bit more about Typo's nose. I mean, I, yeah. I will never look at a dog's nose the same way again after reading this book. Uh, same, right. So um, one thing that uh, people often miss about a dog's nose is that the two nostrils have side slits that curve round. They're little apostrophes. And those are really important. Like if you imagine a dog sniffing along a surface, every time it exhales, you would think that it is going to puff away all of that scented goodness that might be lurking on that surface. But in fact, those slits create these swirling vortices of air that sweep in scented molecules on the surface next to the nose into the dog's nose. So the upshot of this is that whenever a dog is smelling, whether it's inhaling or exhaling, it's getting this constant conveyor belt of smell wafting into its nose. And then when that air goes inside, unlike what happens in our um, body, where there's a single airstream that goes into the lungs and then out again, and smell receptors like grab chemicals in that air along the way, a dog's nose splits that airstream in two. So there's a bit that goes into the lungs and is for breathing. And then there is a smaller stream that goes into the back of the snout and especially and only for smell. Um, And again, like that, that pool of air isn't voided with every exhale. So our sense of smell is very flickering. Every time we exhale, we wash away that perception, that, that odorous perception. A, a dog's sense of smell, I think, is much more continuous. It's like, it's like vision for us. It's a smooth movie rather than something that, that strobes in and out. And I, I loved what you said that... Well, you know, when you know, dogs get excited before you come home, before you arrive, right. and that that's... A lot, like a lot of that's to do with smell and not hearing. I always assumed that they could sort of, they could judge your particular steps or the sound of your car, but it, they can smell you. They can sort of tell the future with smell a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Like smells, um, you know, smells move in a different way than other stimuli like light and sound. You know, they'll travel over long distances. They will seep under through cracks and around corners. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty sure my dog can smell my arrival. Um, you know, he is constantly exploring vents, um, you know, cracks under doors, areas where smell moves from one place to another. Um, you know, if, you're, if you have treats in your pocket, I guarantee <laughs> any dog you pass will understand that. Um, and when we go on walks, um, he will sniff patches of pee that other dogs are left behind, which I think uh, as basically being the same as me checking my social media feeds. Because <laughs> it's, 
It's a way of catching up with individuals who you know who aren't necessarily right there. Um, you, the dog will get a lot of information from that. It will get information about the uh, other dog's identity, maybe their age, their sex, what they've been eating, how healthy they are. It, it, there's a lot of biographical information locked within those chemicals. And you know, we to us, it's just pee, right? Like to, and to a dog, it's, it's, a, it's a rich story. This leads us quite well, quite neatly into the concept of the umwelt, mm -hmm. which is central to this book and which yep. I think is certainly one of the things that I've taken away from it with me. And I think we'll always understand the world just slightly differently because I understand the concept of an umwelt. Mm -hmm. What is an umwelt? What is typos for umwelt? Right. Um, <laughs> so the word umwelt is just German for environment, um, but it means more than just the physical environment. So my umwelt is not this microphone or this chair. My umwelt is the part of the world around me that I can perceive, that is accessible to my senses. It is the cocktail of sights and sounds and textures and smells that I have access to. And crucially, it's going to be very, very different than what, say, my dog experiences, even if we are sitting in the same space. Even if you were sitting on my lap, we would be experiencing the same physical reality in a very different way because our senses give us only access to a thin sliver of that full reality. That sliver is what the, the umwelt is. And I think it's one of the most beautiful concepts in biology mm -hmm. um, because on the one hand, it's extremely humbling, right? Like, you know, we are sitting here um, subject to this incredibly powerful illusion that everything we perceive is everything that is to perceive. Um, you know, our, our conscious experience of the world feels complete. It doesn't feel like it's full of holes or missing information, but it is. And, you know, for all of our intelligence and technology, that's always going to be the case. But I think for that same reason, the Umwelt concept is extremely expansive because mm. it tells us that even in the most familiar of settings, um, there is magic and wonder to be found. Um, you know, there's, there's flickers of the extraordinary in the ordinary. And one way of accessing that is to think about what other animals experience. Um, so, you know, thinking about how dogs smell the world gives you cool dinner party facts uh, <laughs> to um, to bore your friends with. But it also means that, you know, walking around my neighborhood mm. is a very different experience. Like by looking at how Typo explores the world, I start to get a sense of how much I'm missing and how much the world around me is subtly changing all the time in ways that I might not appreciate. And I think it makes that world feel just that bit more magical to me. It, it strikes me. So you started writing this book before the pandemic. Right. You were on book Roughly leave. Roughly 520 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, were, you were on book leave and then you were sort of called back yeah. and decided to go back to report on it. And not just report on it, but set the gold standard for how it was reported on. Thank you. You then <laughs> went back yeah. and needed to write this book. And it strikes me that your emotional world must have changed an enormous amount between beginning it and returning to it. Mm -hmm. Could you take me back to the day that you sat back down at your computer and opened the file 
and how you felt and what you found there. Was it mm. to write and think about animals after writing about sort of the worst things that were happening to people? You know, was it a place of solace? Was it faintly ridiculous? <laughs> um, yes, it, it was. It, uh, that's a fantastic question. It was all of those things and more. Um, you know, for all the reasons I'm sure you can imagine, writing about COVID was not a picnic. And um, I've I've joked before that it tells you a little bit about what um, reporting on a pandemic is like, that writing half a book in four months feels like going to a spa. <laughs> it feels like the, the most glorious vacation. Um, and it, it did feel a little bit like that. You know, there was a sort of blessed sense of relief that I, um, uh, you know, could blink after having stared straight into the sun for nine months um it did also feel a a bit absurd mm. um you know this was january of 2021 um the pandemic was still very much in full swing and it felt maybe a bit like a dereliction of duty to step away from it um i stepped away from it partly for to finish the book, but also partly for the sake of my own mental health. Mm. Um, and I, I, like, I felt a bit guilty about doing that. And I've wrestled with this question of, um, like, where best to spend my energy, mm. like which which things to write about, which stories to cover. We are. I'm glad you introduced the session in the way that you did because clearly we are at a time of great existential threat. Um, and the context that we're operating in is dire for many reasons. The, mm. the ones you listed, climate change, biodiversity loss, the ongoing pandemic, or all of it. So how do you deal with that? I think what I realized was um, in finishing the book was that it didn't feel as absurdly divorced from the pandemic work I was doing than it originally appeared. Yeah. Um, I think that these two areas, there's actually a lot of common tissue that that connects them. Um, so I talked about empathy. Um, the book is obviously about empathizing with other creatures who have very different experiences than I do. But a lot of the pandemic work that I'm proudest of is about empathizing with entire groups of people who've really borne the brunt of COVID and mm. who are often not part of mainstream discourse. Um, so long haulers, people with long COVID are a great example, but also immunocompromised people, um, people who've lost loved ones to COVID and are still grieving, um, healthcare workers, weirdly enough. Um, a, a lot of those pieces was about trying to get people to take perspectives very different from their own, mm -hmm. much like the book was. And I think that underneath, underneath all of that is the idea that the world that we know is subject to a multitude of hidden forces that um, we often don't appreciate and that we absolutely need to. Mm. So in this case, the, all the threads of information that other animals can perceive and that we don't. I, I think it's worth knowing about because it makes the world a bit more magical. Um, with the pandemic work, a lot of my early pieces were about the systems that failed us like the the structural and societal vulnerabilities that we take for granted that make us very vulnerable 
to um, to a new pathogen. Um, so I think a lot of my work for many years has been about those ideas mm. of um, the world being deeper and more complicated than we take for granted um, and other experiences as being worthy of understanding and appreciation. I think you, you've spoken about the book as, as, as helping to that one of the things you hope it does is kind of keep our empathy muscles strong. And to yeah. extend the metaphor, it almost seems like, you know, curiosity is the exercise that, that keeps the muscles strong. That's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to write that down. This is a book about curiosity. <laughs> it is, right. And so, that, yeah, we talked about empathy, but curiosity is the other, the pillar, mm. right? The, the, it's, it's those two pillars upon which most of my work and certainly this book is constructed. Um, and I think the Umwelt concept is... is is um, is founded on those two ideals. Um, you know, the I, I say quite early on in the book that one of the challenges of thinking about the sensory worlds of other animals is that it, it's an exercise that is sort of doomed to failure, right? So um, sea turtles can sense the magnetic field of the earth itself as if they had a compass inside their heads. Um, rattlesnakes can sense the infrared radiation given off by living things. Um, I think it's some local examples. So platypuses can sense the electric field of other living things with their bill. Um, the wedge-tailed eagle has the highest resolution vision on, on record. Um, all of these other experiences you can start to think about what they might be like, but you'll never entirely get there. Like mm. Science can take us some of the way. Um, uh, good writing, I hope, can take us a lot of the way further. But ultimately, I do not know what is going on inside a platypus's head, right? Um, I don't even know whether that electric sense is separate from other senses like touch, you know, are these distinct or does the platypus have a single sense of electro touch that, um, that feels in, you know, inseparable in its brain? I, I can't, I can guess. I think the answer is yes, but I don't know. And there is something therefore a little frustrating about mm. asking people to do this imaginative exercise that is, that they're actually going to fail at. Right. But I think that there is glory and, and purpose in the striving, in, in the yeah. attempt to do so. And I think that's the, that's the crucial bit. And that's, that's just pure curiosity. Yeah. And yeah, it, there's one of, the, one of the things that we can see is um, you, you write about how bees can see the, the sort of elect, electromagnetic Electri fields yep, right. of flowers. Yep. How have bee senses likely changed what we can see? Yeah, uh, great. Um, so there's a lot of information in a flower that we don't have access to. Um, so obviously colors, right, and smells. Um, but uh, flowers also have an electric field that surrounds them. Um, there is a planetary electric field from sky to ground caused by the lightning storms that occur around the world and flowers grow into that field developing a charge themselves um, we don't sense that bees absolutely can bees have been trained to tell the difference between different flowers based on the electric fields around them and as well as that 
Flowers have beautiful colors and patterns that we can't see. So a lot of them have bullseyes, halos, landing strips that are only visible to an eye that can see ultraviolet, a color at the far end of the rainbow beyond violet. It's literally what it means. Bees and hummingbirds and all kinds of pollinators absolutely can see those colors. So to them, flowers look very different. Like a sunflower, think of what a sunflower looks like, just plain yellow. Actually, no, it's got a vivid ultraviolet bullseye in the middle. Um, now, I, I love the way you framed the question because it's actually one of my favorite bits in, in the book. Um, you might, so it's very easy to think of the senses as this sort of passive thing, right? Like you are sitting here, light is going to your eyes, sound from my mouth is going to your ears. You're just, you're not doing very much, right? You're sitting there absorbing all of this stimulus, all this information. But actually sensing just, just in and of itself is a very active process that shapes the world around us. So the, the flowers are a good example of this. Um, you could look at all the flowers in the world, all of the colors that exist in all of the blooms and ask what kind of eye is best at telling apart all of these colors. And if you do this exercise, and scientists have, what you end up with is basically the eye of a bee. It is an eye that, like our eye, has three kinds of color-sensing cells, but while ours are sensitive to red, green, and blue, a bee's is sensitive to green, blue, and ultraviolet. Um, so that kind of eye is really good at telling different flower colors apart. So you might think then that bees evolved eyes that are really good at looking at flowers. And that is a totally reasonable hypothesis that just happens to be completely wrong. <laughs> the, the actual answer is that, so it's wrong because bee eyes evolved first and flowers came later. So in fact, flowers evolved colors that ideally tickle the eyes of bees. And I love that because it tells us something actually quite profound. It tells us that through the act of sensing the world, through looking at the world, bees shaped the form that floral beauty has mm. taken, the kind of beauty that we then as humans appreciate. Um, so as I say in the book, like beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder, it arises because of that eye. Yeah, and these umbelts have shaped our umbelt and it's... Yeah, and right, and you yeah. get these cascades that happen, yeah. <laughs> So bats is, you know, the umbelt of bats is a lot to do with echolocation. It really comes alive at night. But tell me about meeting Daniel Kish. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so on the bats, bats have this ability called echolocation. It's a kind of biological sonar. They send out high-pitched calls and they listen out for the echoes. And they, their nervous system is incredibly good at timing the tiny gaps between sound and echo. And from that, they can calculate distance. This is how bats know where obstacles are in a dark cave or how they can grab an insect out of the sky. This skill sounds incredible, um, but actually a lot of people can echolocate as well. Um, so many blind people do exactly the same thing. And I met one of them for the book. His name is Daniel Kish. He lives in um, uh, Southern California. And he has been blind from a very, very young age, I think close to his first birthday. And he now gets around with a cane, obviously, but also 
he echolocates. Um, so he makes loud clicking noises with his tongue. They're incredibly, like if I try and make a, it's kind of wet and pathetic. Um, and his, uh, his click is like this loud, sharp retort. It's crystal clear. And we, can, we walk down his street and he can tell me um, where the cars are, where there's a bush, where there's a fence, whether it's a chain fence or a slat fence, whether there's a tree branch um, across his path, which he'll then duck. Um, he, ha he hikes. He's been mountain biking, improbably. Um, <laughs> he just has this incredible sense of the world uh, through through sonar. And he and taught himself when he was... He sort of discovered that he could do it when he, he was very small? He did, yeah. Um, he, he just started making these noises. He doesn't remember, like, you know... It, he didn't, like, read a manual. He just started making these noises, and it was self-taught. And he makes this great point that... Um, a lot of people could do this, um, but w uh, often when kids start, they're told that, you know, don't make a weird noise, right? Mm. Like it, it's, it's not socially acceptable. And one thing that his parents always did was to not discourage that and to not tell them like, no, like riding a bike is a stupid thing. Of course, you cannot do that. Like he, <laughs> he, he learned how to do it. And, and yeah, he, he is self-taught. And I think Daniel's a really, really interesting example here because here is a person with a sense that I do not have, but he does have language and the same language that I have. And so it should be possible for him to very accurately convey his sensory experience to me, but it isn't because he does, he, you know, I've, has close to never known what it is like to see. Mm. And I, of course, don't know what it is like for him to echolocate. So, he also has grown up in a world, a society that is heavily vision dominated and has visual terms in all of its um, descriptions. So when Daniel talks about what he experiences, he uses visual lingo, right? He talks about like flashes or, or brightness. He talks about imagery, but it's not, that's definitely not the same as what I experience by, with those terms. Um, so just like trying to talk to him and, and work out what he ex does experience, the closest description I can think of is, you know, imagine you close your eyes and you make a click. And every time that happens, it's like the world, like I imagine like watercolor blotches appearing out of the darkness, representing the different shapes and textures of the world. Um, you know, so there'll be a different type of, splotch for a tree versus a car or mm. you know something hard one thing that daniel point um, told me which i thought was fascinating is that um he once was challenged to people love to make make him do like little party tricks right and and one of the things was to try and echolocate um different objects and tell tell people what they were and he was given two objects that he could not tell apart and they were a teddy bear and a champagne bottle. Oh, you would think those would have very different... Totally. But yeah. what happens is the teddy bear is very soft and so doesn't return a lot of sound. It's very absorbent. The champagne bottle is very, very curved and so bounces the sound in all kinds of directions. And wow. the, the end result is that both of them give very, very fuzzy feedback to an echolocator and cannot be 
taught child apart. And the other thing is like, if you have like, say, uh, if I took my keys out and put them on the table, like echolocating a small object against a big object is really, really hard because all the echoes coming back from the table are going to drown out the echoes from the oh, keys. Oh, wow, yeah. So it makes a sort of shadow, echolocation shadow. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like getting into the, the minutia of how that works is fascinating, but I, I think it just goes back to my earlier point that even with the benefit of shared language, mm. I still don't actually know what is going on inside its head. And, and so to, to, to try and work out what it is like to be Daniel Kish or a bat or a dog, it always requires this feat of effortful imagination. You describe, I think, trying to imagine what it's like to be an octopus and why it's impossible, because uh, if I'm understanding correctly, it's, no, you know, it's sort of an octopus's nervous system kind of runs throughout its body. And then part of the reason that it's impossible for us to imagine that is because we can place ourselves inside the body of an octopus mentally, but we're still using a human brain to try and imagine that. Absolutely. And yes. the kind of control of limbs that can bend all sorts of ways. And it's just... It's, yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing. That, that's exactly it. You, you, are, you are using a mind that has evolved in this context, a body with bone and like fixed possibility to then imagine what it is like to be an octopus that has a body of almost infinite flexibility and a very, very different nervous system. So an octopus, um, you know, a, a famously reasonably intelligent animal um, three-fifths of its nervous system are in its arms. And octopus arms can function semi-autonomously. Um, you know, an octopus arm is totally capable of reaching out, grabbing an object and pulling it back without needing any communication with the central brain. Um, so what does that mean? Like, is it possible for an octopus arm on its own to be curious? Like, can, can, can it show that kind of intelligence on its own? It's just a very different setup. And, and in the book, I, I, write, I talk about how I, I kind of think of the octopus as a creature with two umbelts. Like there's, mm. there's the world of the arms, which is dominated by taste and touch. And there's the world of the head, which is dominated by vision. And there is definitely communication between the two. Like the brain can control the rest of the arm, but it doesn't have to. Like an octopus arm can solve a maze on its own. Um, and it can take orders from the brain, but like the brain is much more of like a jazz musician than like the conductor of an orchestra. <laughs> it's just going to do what it wants to do right, within yeah. some bounds. Within some <laughs> yeah. bounds, right, yeah. Um, we learn another great German word, um, which is Knollenorgan. Right. <laughs> I think yeah. it's, I'm assuming it's a German word. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we meet the elephant fish, who strike yeah. me as kind of the dogs of the fish world. Yeah. Um, and they have schnauzen organs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of good German in the <laughs> Which book. you describe as, the, the schnauzen organ, which you would think is a nose, is actually a chin. Think Pharaoh, not Pinocchio. Yeah. What is a knollen organ? Okay, so um, a lot of fish have the ability to create their own electric fields. So the electric eel is the most famous example of this and can produce electricity powerful enough to stun or kill uh, a human or even a horse. But most electric fish are not so powerful. Most of them produce very, very weak electric fields that would barely hurt or be perceptible to a human. Those fields, however, are enough for the fish to sense its environment. So they have receptors that sense how the field it creates is distorted by objects in the world around it. Non-organs are an example of those receptors. Um, so 
the fish, whereas the fish swims past um, a conducting object like a plant or another fish, um, it's going to get a very different feeling from its electric organs than if it swims past an insulating object like a rock. Mm. And this is... Um, this is slightly different to what I told you about what the platypus does. The platypus is sensing the electric fields that all living thing just, things just naturally give off. These fish are creating their own electric fields and then sensing that and how it interacts with the, object or the objects around it. it. I think of it as like an extended version of touch. Like if you, it, because of two things, it works in all directions. So it's like this cons, it's this omnidirectional awareness that extends all over the fish's body, and but it only extends maybe a couple of inches away from the fish's body, right? So imagine, like, just close your eyes, like feel everything that your skin can touch, um, the chair, the um, maybe the person next to you. Um, now imagine if you if that experience was extended outwards by, like, say, a foot. That's sort of what it would be like to have an electric sense. And it means that these fish can navigate through waters in the Amazon and parts of Africa that are incredibly murky, very hard to see through. Um, the fact that it is an omnidirectional sense means that they have awareness all over, including right behind them. And they use, they make use of that with these incredible bodies that have just weird shapes, right? Like the long, the long nose of the elephant trunk fish. Um, there's a, there are knife fish that have these weird ribbon fins going all, all them around their bodies, and they can swim backwards, upside down. They can do barrel rolls in the water. Like if you watch these these fish swim, it just looks weird, right? Like they, they just look like they aren't constrained by physics, um, and that's partly because they have a sense that allows for that. They can sense in all directions around them. And the, the thing I think I find is coolest about the electric sense is it also allows for electric communication. So the fish can use the same pulses that they use to navigate and sense objects in the round, around them to send messages to other electric fish. <laughs> um, so you can dip like an electrode uh, that you get from like any, you know, random electronics mu music store into the water in any place where these fish live. Uh, and you might not be able to see anything, but you will hear this electric chorus that just abounds in the water. Mm. And the, 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 the final thing I'll, the, that I want to share about this is that this really messes up the boundary between perception and communication because it is the same electric fields that these fish are producing to sense their surroundings and to talk to each other. So sometimes electric fish have fights and one common thing that the losing fish does is to switch off its electric field as a sign of submission. But that also shuts down its main way of understanding the world, right? Like, it's like saying, I'm sorry, but also you're closing your, your you know, you're yeah. blocking your ears and covering your eyes. And I think it, it speaks to the really weird alien nature of, of this world that... Um, you know, for us, communication and sensing are, are clearly separable things. And for, for these fish, that's really not the case. Like, they're, they're very melded together. The other one that's really hard to understand is magnetic. Right. Animals magnetic. that can, under yeah. can sense the magnetic field mm -hmm. of the Earth. Um, and you do a very good job of describing it, but it is so hard to understand. Hard. Yeah. 
one of the things that I think I understood, and I wonder if you could tell me about this, is, is so it's a great mystery where the cells are in various animals that can sense um, the magnetic fields. We don't know where a lot of those cells are or the organs are or what's doing it. But one of the theories that you find is based on bacteria, which in their cells form chains of crystals <laughs> of magnetite, which then... From what I understand, the chain of the crystal acts like a, the needle of a compass. Yeah. And it, it moves according to the poles of the earth. Yeah, right. And that's possibly, the, the idea is that possibly there are animals that basically have tiny little compasses in them. I mean, compasses similar to what we know to be a compass. Basically, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The, so uh, metaphorically, they have compasses. S yeah. Physically, they might well have little compasses too. So yeah, okay. the idea is that, that some of these creatures that include things like sea turtles, songbirds, um, you guys have bogong moths uh, in yeah. Australia. <laughs> they navigate with the uh, magnetic fields too. Um, and one idea is that they have these little compass needles. Now, it's really hard, right? They, they might not. There is a competing idea that uh, involves, that gets us into the really messy world of quantum physics and that I'm not even going to try and explain here. <laughs> um, the, the, the critical thing is that we know animals do this, right? Like you can take a bogon moth um, and put it in a lab and change the mag and it will fly in the direction it needs to go. Like it will know the way even if you block out all other sources of information. And then if you put it in a special lab and change the magnetic field around it, it will head in the direction that you set it to, that you set the field to, right? So it clearly has this inbuilt compass. The, the difficulty with this sense called magnetoreception is that it is the only sense where we don't really know what is the sense organ, like what is the equivalent of the eye or the ear? What are the cells that detect the magnetic field? How does any of it work? And the reason that we don't know any of those things is that magnetic fields are a really weird kind of stimulus. Um, they penetrate through flesh and are unimpeded by it. So light is clearly blocked by our bodies. Sound is blocked by our bodies. Smells are blocked by our bodies. And so most sense organs require some kind of pit or hole or opening, right? So it's actually quite easy to find on an animal what the sense organs are. You have to look for like openings, um, <laughs> eyes, ears, noses, uh, shark, in sharks and in platypuses, there are little pores that allow them to, that are where the electric sense organs are. In catfish, it's their butts. Yeah, right, yes. <laughs> their whole bodies, but also their butts. Whole bodies. <laughs> um, yeah, but so, um, not the case for the magnetic field. Magne so a magnetic sensor could be absolutely anywhere. It could be in my head, it could be in my toes, it could be distributed all over the place. So, even knowing where to look is a big problem. Um, and I think, and then also magnetic fields are incredibly faint. So it's actually like frankly ludicrous that animals can detect them at all. Like it, it, it really is stretching the, the boundaries of, of physics and biology and how they interact. Um, so it's still, it's still a mystery. And I think it's one of many mysteries about the senses. It's the, it's the sense about which we know least. But I think for, for all of them, there's, there are probably more unknowns than there are knowns. And mm. that's part of the, the challenge, but also the joy of writing a book about this area. And you traveled to Australia um, 
one of you know you you spoke to a few scientists here, mm -hmm. um, but one of the scientists you spoke to was blasting sound at our Great Barrier Reef, and he was using yeah. the, how is he using the umwelt of fish to try and conserve fish? Yeah, um, so. Um, Right. One thing he recognized is that when um, a reef bleaches and when the corals die, um, it becomes not only visually obvious, right, that's what bleaching is, it becomes white and ghostly, but it also becomes eerily quiet. A coral reef is actually a very noisy place. You've got parrotfish crunching on the corals, you've got snapping shrimp um, making loud pops with their claws. And those noises are really, really important because they guide fish, baby fish, and possibly even like larval corals back to the reef from other parts of the sea. A lot of baby fish will spend their early life in the open ocean and they use sound, among other cues, to find their way back to their habitat. And if those sounds aren't there, it furthers this vicious cycle where a dead reef is hard to resurrect. Hmm. Um, and so this, this guy, um, Tim Gordon, now Tim, Tim Lamont, um, did this experiment where they basically set up speakers around parts of the Great Barrier Reef that had been bleached and played the sound of a healthy reef mm. and found that fish um, were more likely to recruit back to those areas when were set up healthier communities. And look, like, when to to save the Great Barrier Reef, we need to cut back on carbon emissions, right? Like, yeah, you need a lot of speakers. So. Right, exactly, right, or a, or a lot of speakers. <laughs> this, is, you know, this isn't going to save everything, but uh, you know, any, anything with coral reefs now that could help, I think, is a good thing. Mm. Um, it it gives, gives us a fighting chance while we hopefully try and push towards um, uh, a world with fewer carbon emissions. But, but I think the point is that Conservation becomes a lot easier uh, when you think about the sensory experiences of other creatures. Right? Mm. Like, it's it's harder to save other animals when you don't know anything about how they perceive the world, what cues matter to them, um, and this is you know pre a prevalent idea in the book in big and small ways. The whole final chapter is about light and sound pollution, about these types of sensory pollution, ways in which we flood the world with information at the wrong times or the wrong places that harm and sometimes even kill animals around us. But even from the first chapter, I'm talking about how um, you know, dog owners who don't understand the importance of smell to a dog will often yank their dogs along on a walk, um, stop them from sniffing because it seems boring. Um, one thing that my wife and I try and do is to take Typo on smell walks where he gets to set the pace and he gets to sniff to his heart's content. And it's not exercise, mm. it's not travel, it's a chance for him to explore. And I think that's really, really important. Like if you if you think about pulling a dog along on a walk um, and stopping it from experiencing the world through its nose, you know, imagine that every time you went on a hike, um, every time you stopped to admire a beautiful view, someone covered your eyes and dragged you along the path. <laughs> it's sort of like what, what a lot of us end up doing to our dogs uh, inadvertently. Um, and they, right, so all of these, I think, are examples of like the utilitarian um, 
benefits of thinking about the Umwelt idea, that um, it helps us be better custodians of the natural world. It helps us be better caretakers of the creatures who are in our lives. Because we, we're the only creatures that we know of, well, we are the, we're the only creatures whose Umwelt includes, well, al allows us to understand the umbelts of others. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, so we you have know, a responsibility. I, yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I make this claim with due humility because there have been <laughs> many claims um, about humans having a skill that no other animal has that has then been disproved. Like, animals constantly mm -hmm. surprise us what they're capable of. But I do think that this ability to understand that different umwelt exist and to think about them is likely a uniquely human skill, if only because it's something that most of us don't even think about and mm. something that required a lot of scholarship to develop. Um, it's, it's a non-obvious idea. And I do think that it is something that likely we ex we and we alone experience you know like i um i used to live in washington dc and um typo would frequently uh hang out with a crow that would visit our deck <laughs> great photos of this corgi and this crow staring at each other and i don't think the corgi i don't think typo is sitting there thinking I wonder, you know, what beautiful colors the crow is seeing. I don't think the crow is sitting there marveling at the, my dog's side slit nostrils. <laughs> but I can. I, I have that ability, and, and we all do. And, and I think that is a gift. I, I think it's a really profound thing to be able to do. And I think it's one that we shouldn't, um, that we should use well and cherish. That seems like a good place to end. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Does anyone have any questions? If you do, great. Put up your hands. Your, a roving mic will be brought to you. Thanks. Um, one of my favourite things about your book was the characters that we met along the way among the scientists who were so passionate about their niche animal and the niche aspect of that animal they were studying. So I wanted to ask you, who was the kookiest scientist <laughs> that you met? Who was the biggest character? And if I may squeeze in a second really quick question, I'm dying to know if you're vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll do that quickly. I am vegetarian. Um, so uh, with, this, with the scientists, um, yeah. Um, so a, a couple of people spring to mind. So um, there's, a, there's a chap called Ken Catania um, who shows up in multiple points in the book because he, he's very unusual and that a lot of scientists who work in this space focus on like bats or elephants for their whole career. And Ken has studied star-nosed moles and emerald cockroach wasps and electric eels. And he just sort of flits around from one weird creature to another and does these sort of very fascinating but very weird experiments and like publishes as a single author scientist, which is like basically unheard of nowadays. Um, but like one of the, one of the uh, people who, who really spring to mind, you know, not, not in a kooky way, but just I think... In epitomizing that, that kind of glee that you you enjoyed in, in the book, thank you. Um, like I, I met a woman named Beth Mortimer who studies spiders, and um, I'm in her lab at the University of Oxford in England. And you know, we, we I interview her. We talked about spiders, and then I, I'd say I said, um, 
can you show me your spiders? And I thought she would take me into like a small room on which maybe there would be some shelves, in which maybe would be some like little terraria, in which would be some spiders. And instead, she walks me into what is like basically a very large hangar with a lot of free range uh, giant spiders. They're like Nephila, so they're the golden orb weavers. They're about like the size of an ear. And they've got these meter-wide webs that are all over this room. And how do you feed a room full of free-range spiders? Well, you've got like a compost bin of rotting fruit and there's just flies everywhere. So I'm talking to Beth and flies are landing in my hair and they're on my notepad and they're in my recorder and I'm trying to be cool. And uh, I like spiders, hate flies, so I'm just there like surrounded by flies. And Beth is just just luminous with with joy about <laughs> all of it um she's she's talking about how much she loves spiders she also does love work on elephants but it's kind of meh on them really the spiders are her favorite thing and that sort of that's what i want um partly because i love watching people being passionate about things about the natural world but also because Spiders are a hard sell, right? A lot of mm -hmm. people hate them. Uh, a lot of people find them very creepy. And getting people to try and empathize with a spider is hard. But one way of doing that is showing them someone who deeply cares about spiders. And I think that Beth's glee and joy and, and the beauty she finds in them, the, the way they experience the world is, is, is infectious. And she acts as a kind of gateway drug to, um, to a reader who might not be spider curious. <laughs> I've read both of your books and particularly enjoyed listening to your really clear articulation for an immense world. So big plug for Audible and your book there. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really keen to know what you have in the pipeline. Um, yeah. Um, so I am currently working on book three. Um, and by currently, I mean... Uh, the book deal was agreed, I think, three weeks ago. Wow. Um, and uh, I have not started yet. That is, in fact, what I'm going to do when I get home from Australia. Um, I think I don't want to fully say the idea yet um, and will announce it very, very shortly. Um, but what I will say is that it really does fit it really does continue with a lot of the ideas and themes from the first two books um so both i contain multitudes and an immense world like i said and a lot of my pandemic reporting right about hidden aspects of the world around us ways of living and existing that are very different than our normal human experience trying to show the variety and diversity and wonder in the natural world and take us out of our own normal lives in ways that then defamiliarize what we thought we knew about the world around us. Uh, and book three is very much along those lines. I, I, so the, the best teaser I can give you right now before saying exactly what it's about is, is I see it as, a, as part three of a trilogy that the first two books began. Um, it's a it's a bigger and more ambitious idea than than the first two, and is a little bit daunting. Um, Helen and I were saying that, that one of the worst things about writing books is the the creeping sensation that you're going to do another one. Um, <laughs> 
uh, and that <laughs> and it's somehow happened. beyond your control. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. There, there's that sense of like horrific inevitability <laughs> as you go through like the worst parts of book writing and know absolutely that you're going to make this horrible mistake again. Um, but yeah. So uh, I, I will. I will make an announcement about book three soon. But I'm very excited about it. I was wondering uh, how big would the organ um, for the uh, noticing magnetic fields be and would it be different for each animal, as you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it could be any size, right? That, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Um, it doesn't even need to be an organ, um, right? As, so sense organs, like in my eye, there is a retina with millions of photoreceptors. Those are cells that can detect light. And it makes sense to have them packaged that way because of how light behaves. But with magnetic fields, you don't, you don't really need that, right? So each receptor, each cell could be part of a distributed network around my entire body. So it could be tiny, it could be huge. We don't know. Um, and it does likely, it's probable that there'll be lots of different magnetic organs that work in different ways in different animals. So um, uh, Helen talked about the idea of um, the little tiny compasses, uh, right? So that might be the case for some creatures. Um, with birds, we absolutely know that the eye is involved um, in some way. Um, so if you block a bird's eyes, um, it stops being able to... Uh, to orient magnetically and if you don't have any light at all even like the faintest amount like moonlight is enough but if you have no light it doesn't work so the eye is important light is important it's part of that quantum physics thing that i, that I hinted at um but right so um sea turtles are a really good example of this. so uh, a sea turtle, uh, a baby sea turtle that emerges from a beach in uh, Florida um, on the west coast of the Atlantic, on the west side of the Atlantic, will go into the ocean and it will spend 10 years doing a clockwise loop of the entire Atlantic. So it'll go from up the, up the coast to North America and then over to, across to Europe and then back down again very slowly. If you take that, that turtle and put it in a lab and expose it to the kind of magnetic field it might experience at different points on that journey. So the magnetic, Earth's magnetic field varies over its surface. And if you give it like the magnetic field of Portugal, it will swim in the right direction as if it were in Portugal, off the coast of Portugal. And it will do that having never been in the water before. So a sea turtle has clearly got two magnetic sensors, right? It has a map, so it understands how the magnetic field of the Earth varies at different points, or at the very least, like, knows, has some instinct, like, if you encounter this signature, go in this direction. And it also has a compass. So it knows where it is, and it knows where to go. Um, are those two magnetic sensors uh, governed by the same thing like the same organ or cell or whatever uh no idea um maybe maybe not maybe it's two different senses i'm curious to know what how you feel about how many more senses there may be the unknown unknowns in the sensory world yeah. of animals yeah um i mean there could be many um i think that 
it is sort of tempting to think that we've got most of them, right? Like I'm, I'm struggling to imagine like what kinds of information exist that we haven't already discussed or like ruled out. Um, but the thing is, we are limited by our own biology, right? So the, 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 uh, the information that we can detect, our own umwelt, constrains our ability to even think about the possibility of sensing other things. So when echolocation was first discovered um, in bats, one of the researchers um, who, who published like the pioneering experiments on, on echolocation recalls a moment where he talked about his work at a conference and another scientist like was grabbing him by the lapels and like sh literally shaking him and saying you cannot possibly mean that because it sounded so ridiculous um obviously it wasn't and even people at the time were echolocating um but the i you know this idea that effectively you could um you know see with your ears right like you could you could navigate through sound you could use sound in an exploratory way was just so preposterous because it is something that most humans do not do that this was a very hard idea to get across to people and one thing i think is really cool is that uh, donald griffin one of the other pioneers of echolocation wrote about this this difficulty of um stepping outside like even asking scientific questions outside the boundaries of your own umbelt but he himself was massively skeptical about the existence of a magnetic sense like he here is a guy who discovered a sense that you know took a lot of convincing to to get mainstream and he himself um, found it largely very implausible that animals could sense the Earth's magnetic field, and so on, and so you know, and so it goes. So, I'm sure that we'll, you know, I could write another edition in a few decades, and there will be something new. Um, but, but who knows what that will be? Um, hello, thank you for such. Um, up Where here. am I looking? Oh, there you are. Oh, hello. Hi. <laughs> um, thanks for such a fascinating talk. Thank I've you. got two questions, if I could squeeze them in. Sure. Um, the first one is about echolocation and sound. And I'm just wondering whether, oh God, it's so hard to describe, isn't it? Because it's such a yeah, weird yeah. concept. But if if echolocation requires the sound that to be bounced from you, or whether you are actually hearing external sounds differently. So if Daniel was sitting here next to me and someone played a note on a violin on the stage, would he be getting information about the hall that oh. I'm not getting? And does he hear that violin in a different way to how I'm hearing it? Because he's getting shape with it as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think the answer to that is no. I'm, I'm sure that he, like, I'm sure that proficient echolocators will get more from, um, they're from passive hearing than what the rest of us are getting just because they rely on their um their ears so much but that is different than using his own self-produced sound and i think that's a i'm really glad you asked this actually no one's ever asked that before but it is a it's a really crucial distinction because i actually don't think of echolocation as being that close to hearing 
it's actually a very different sense. And the one that I think it's most like is touch. Mm. Because echolocation is... So a lot of our senses are fundamentally passive, right? So I, I can, I'm looking at you now and I am seeing you and I can decide to look at different places. I can actively move around, but like vision works even if I don't do that. But echolocation does not. So without the, without the click, there is no echo. So someone who's echolocating or about who's echolocating is constantly doing something to sense the world. And that means that echolocation is always exploratory by default. Um, I've likened it to like reaching out to the world with phantasmal hands made of sound and kind of exploring it. Like you can, dolphins do this too, right? Dolphins also use sonar. And, um, you know, when a, when a dolphin echolocates on an object, it really is almost as if it was invisibly touching it, like exploring it, getting things like texture and shape and the kind of information that you would expect um, touch to provide. Echolocation kind of does that too. Um, so yeah, I, I, think that, I think that's a really good question, but it is, even though it relies on the same organs and relies on the same medium sound waves, it is actually a very, very different kind of sense. We are over time. Did you say, was there anyone else who had a question? You could quickly ask your second one, just quickly. <laughs> it's a bit of a wacky one, so it might have a very quick answer. <laughs> I'm just wondering if uh, this kind of study has led you to be open to... Uh, when people say that they see auras or they have other senses. So oh. basically psychic ability, whether <laughs> this opens that door. But yeah. There are other senses we don't know about. So um, the way I feel about it is it is to one way of reacting to all of the stuff that I wrote in the book is basically like, Anything goes, right? So, so it is, it's, a, it's an easy hop, skip, and a jump from that to paranormal stuff must be, must be real. Um, but I prefer to think of it as showing that what is actually natural is so much richer and more diverse and weirder than we give it credit for without the need to rely on the supernatural for that. I think that abilities that other creatures have might seem supernatural to us, including things that my dog can do or any of the birds outside can do. And I think all of that gives me a sense of awe and wonder and almost unlimited magic in the natural world um, without resorting to the paranormal. Um, I will just say, just quickly, thank you to our wonderful Aslan um, interpreters, Linda and Leah. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> Thank you. 
You've been listening to Helen Sullivan in conversation with Ed Yong. This episode was recorded at the Capitol on Saturday, the 14th of October, 2023. It was presented in partnership with RMIT Culture as part of Spring Fling. Spring Fling was proudly supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. A special thanks to official bookseller Readings and accommodation partner The Sofitel. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.